Hi, everyone. My name is Penny Cook, and I'm the president and CEO of Pioneer Network. I want to welcome you to the latest edition of Pioneer Network's Listen, Learn, Explore podcast. We feature experts in person-directed care and culture change and explore timely topics. Today, I'm pleased to introduce episode 18 of Listen, Learn, Explore, the importance of family collaboration for quality dementia care with my guest, Kim Orchall. Kim is an occupational therapist and the president and founder of Dementia Care Specialists at Crisis Prevention Institute. Dementia Care Specialists offers a person-centered, abilities-focused model of care for those living with Alzheimer's and dementia. And Kim believes that with the proper training and support for care partners, we can give those living with dementia the quality of life they deserve. Kim, thank you so much for being here for the second part of our discussion about dementia care. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Penny. Now, I have to say, I think this is a standalone topic, but some people may have heard our last discussion in October about distress behaviors. So today I'm really excited to delve into the caregiver aspect of dementia care with you. Yes, and I think this is an important topic. I think it's so important. And I think that, you know, one of the first questions I have is this idea that we talk about quality dementia care, but what does it mean to really receive that? And why is it vital? Yeah, I think even before we get into receiving it and why it's vital, let's kind of dig into what is quality dementia care, right? You know, what does that really mean? And I, and I, in my heart, I feel like really good care is about helping people who are living with dementia to stay, to stay successfully engaged in what they want and they need to do every day. And quality dementia care is about dispelling the myth, like behavior just happens. And again, I'm putting behavior in air quotes. Behavior just happens or people with dementia can't do anything anymore. We've got to really dispel those myths to be able to provide good quality care. And quality care is meant to improve and maintain function and quality of life. And it understands that um, people experience distress behavior sometimes because it's a form of communication. So we can help to keep them free from unnecessary drugs. The ability to provide that kind of quality care, Penny, is, is really rooted in person-centered care. It's rooted in seeing the abilities, not what somebody can't do. And it's um, dementia stage informed. Okay, if we understand where somebody's at at a dementia stage, we can better help improve their function and their engagement in life. Um, we know someone is receiving quality of care, quality care when their personhood is being represented, when the plan of care is built around their wants, their needs, their preferences. We know when their strengths are being prioritized this is quality dementia care and when we're properly supporting their challenges. And quality dementia care is also about supporting families. You know, it's not just about the professional caregivers that we want to help and support their, them, but we need to really understand the lived experience of the family member. And families are experiencing a lot of stress. They have a lot of burden. They have a lot of emotional pain. So we wanna really help to reduce that. So for the person living with dementia, it's vital because we're gonna help them to stay actively engaged in life, help them to thrive. And for the loved one, it's vital because they don't know how to help their loved one. 
and they don't know that they too can become a victim of this disease. You know, it's a lot of stress that's on the families. And, you know, I think about Penny um, years ago, I was a national speaker for the Alzheimer's Association and I had other opportunities to speak with families and they would kind of hang around. Um, we would do some education and then they would hang around after the event and they would say, okay, that was great. I learned a lot. Now I have specific questions. And sometimes they would wait 10, 15 minutes, an hour just to ask that specific question. And that said to me, wow, we are really missing something because all the work we do as health professionals, we can't just solely focus on the person with dementia. That's not where quality ends. We have to focus on those families and their questions and their needs. So quality dementia care is comprehensive in that way. Families matter. There is so much to unpack in that answer, Kim. And the first thing I noticed was how you even just flipped the way we look at dementia and for the person who's living with it, really to look at that abilities first perspective yeah. is yeah. what can somebody do? It's not what they can't do. What can they do? What can they still do? And I hate to use the word still sometimes, but I want to illustrate it that way. And I think that's such a different perspective. And when I think about people who are living with dementia and their family members, I can only assume that when you look at your loved one who's living with dementia in that way of how can they still, you know, be engaged? How can they still have purpose? How can they still thrive? I think that that must give family members this idea of, oh my goodness, there are some, there are some positive things here that I can grasp onto. And I, I, I think that that brings us into that idea of family collaboration. So what are just some examples that demonstrate why family collaboration is so important for that person who's living with dementia? Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, Penny, to dovetail on what you said is that um, when we can focus on the positives, I think that's really important. And cognitive change doesn't necessarily mean that this person can't do anything anymore. So sometimes when I'm working with families, I'll pull in the analogy of children going through different developmental phases of life. And yes, they're cognitively impaired. Yes, they're communication impaired. Yes, they express their wants and needs through behavior more than words. So I help them understand that in childcare, we innately know how to support the cognitively challenged child to be the best they can be by focusing on those positives and supporting the deficits. And that really helps me, I think, when I'm working with families to get their understanding right away, that when somebody's changing in their cognition or their communication, it doesn't mean they can't do anything anymore or have quality of life. But we also have to ex understand that families are experiencing a lot of loss, right? So it's different than a child who's developing and becoming something than when it's an, a person with dementia who's declining. So we have to be very empathetic to that. 
But when we think about collaboration, I think it's somewhat born out of those mutual understandings and perspective. But the first thing I like to do with families is say, what are your goals and what are your objectives? Because we can't assume that the goals and objectives are the same, right? But collaboration is about working towards the same goals. So we have to get to know the family. Where are they in that moment? What are their challenges? What are they struggling with? And are our goals the same? And I'll give you a little bit of a story about that, um, Penny. Uh, one time as a home health occupational therapist, I was called in to help a situation with a loving husband and his wife. And what was happening is his wife, who had dementia, was sleeping up to 18 hours a day. And she was uh, experiencing depression. She had wounds that were developing or ulcers due to the immobility. Um, what was happening is that husband's goal at that point was to do everything for her because he thought that was what he should do as a loving husband. So he created this very dependent wife and he became very overwhelmed and burnt out. And she was becoming physically frail, just sitting in that lazy boy chair for, you know, sleeping the day away. So when I came into the situation, I had to help him understand that you are a loving husband if you help her to be the best she can be at this stage and do as much for herself as she can do. So it was flipping his goal from don't treat her like a helpless individual, instead empower her to be the best she can be with dementia, which in turn helps her to have quality of life and have good physical health and emotional well-being, and it helps you to stay healthy. So collaboration, do we have the same goal? And then how can we work together to achieve it? That's a story that really does illustrate, I think, what you're talking about, Kim, with the idea of collaboration. And I think so many times we don't necessarily delve into what you're talking about are what are the goals of the family member? What are the goals of that family care partner? Because just like in this example, it can really illustrate and help the professional understand why someone is doing what they're doing. So I think that that part is so important. But I also think that family members don't inherently come to a situation where they have the idea that they're going to collaborate with the healthcare providers. And so I'd love to talk about like, what are some of those specific opportunities that family members have for collaboration? Because it's not always easy. Yeah, and I kind of describe collaboration in a couple different ways. I think it's, you know, how do we collaborate so that they're helping us to provide the best care for their loved one? And then how do we collaborate in that we're helping them to work through this journey of having someone in their life with dementia? So I'll say, first of all, I think there's an opportunity to collaborate uh, with families in that we need a lot of information uh, from them about their loved one. So the personal history side of it, you know, they hold the keys to that information. So tell us about um, your loved one, what have been their habits and patterns and history and likes and dislikes, so that we can really provide that person centered care. Um, we need to really get that information. 
Uh, also, we need to know about their loved one's cognitive level or stage of dementia so they can help us in that process by telling us uh, how their loved one is doing each and every day. So we start to get an idea of that cognitive level. Um, but on the other side of it, not just having them give us information that helps with the plan of care, we need to understand that collaboration goes the opposite way. What are they dealing with each and every day? Where are they at as an individual or as a family? What are their challenges? What, are the, what issues are they facing every day? And what we wanna do is first of all, listen, ask the right questions and listen. We can't assume we know. And then we really wanna provide education and support, which we'll go into, I'm sure, a little bit more. But I just wanna make sure that we say that this collaboration is going both ways. How can they help us to provide better care? How can we help them to deal with all the emotional distress and day-to-day -day issues? And I feel like sometimes that second part is what's missing sometimes in the collaboration that as professional caregivers, as professional care providers, we rely on families to try to gain as much information about their loved one as we can, but we don't always have that second step of the listening yes. and being empathetic and providing all that education. And I'm a big believer too, that education is so important. Um, I, I've done some volunteer work with the, with my local Alzheimer's Association chapter for a number of years. And one of the things I'm always surprised by is when I hear these stories that um, people get a diagnosis of dementia from their physician and then things sort of stop and there's not that second step. So, you know, what are some of those common questions that family members have? You gave the example of giving presentations and having family members wait so long, you know, because they had such specific questions. What are some of those common questions that families have? Yeah, so I'm going to give you a few and kind of categorize them, but I want to go back to something you just said. It just kind of pinged my heart there a little bit. Um, I used to sometimes work in diagnostic environments where I was a part of the team that was helping the physician or the specialist create um, the, the diagnosis, you know, what was the root cause of the dementia, is it Alzheimer's, Lewy body, et cetera. And I would often see, like you said, here's the diagnosis now been made based upon all the assessments and here's your medication script and here's a little brochure on from the Alzheimer's Association and that's where it ended. And you know, you just see in the eyes of those family members that they needed so much more. You know, it was it was like not just go get my Aricept, but now what? Right? So that's, I think, a role for someone like myself as an occupational therapist who specializes in dementia. We can be asking for that referral to go follow that family at home, get to know their living situation, get to know what they need to do every day as a family member or where their loved one is in the stage of de dementia and how can we help them all to thrive? You know, so it's so much more than medical intervention. It's that that comprehensive approach. But what family members are often going through, um, Penny, is first of all, I would say they have questions about the basics, you know, so they're looking, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia is one of the first questions you're asked. 
They might say, well, my loved one has dementia, but not Alzheimer's, right? And so, you know, really they want to understand that. They want to understand things like, why is my loved one's personality changing? You know, they used to be a go-getter. They wanted to go out and do things. Now they're isolating at home and, and that can frustrate them. You know, they could say, well, he doesn't want to do anything anymore. Um, they might not understand why memory is changing. And then, uh, their solution might be to, to say, don't you remember, Joe, I told you yesterday. You know, so they're, they're looking for the basics. How do I support the personality changes? How do I know the differences in dementia? What do I do when memory is changing? How do I know when to take the keys away? You know, how, how do I possibly consider putting my loved one in a senior living facility when I promised I would never do that? How do I plan for the future, whether it's finances or care needs, and where do I go to get that information? But you know what they never ask? So they ask the basics about dementia. They ask a lot about how do they care for their loved one. But they never ask, how do I care for myself? And I think that that speaks volumes because they have to put their own oxygen mask on first before they can help their loved one with dementia. They get lost in that. And that's why so many times the family member, the caregiver becomes ill themselves. If they are not just dealing with, oh, I'm getting chills as I say it because I can picture them in front of me um, with their selflessness, you know, that they're just doing their best to be there for their loved one while they're losing themselves in the process. It's so true. And I got not only a chill, but I almost found myself getting a little emotional when you said that, because I almost think that that needs to be the first thing we do along, you know, when, when that diagnosis is given, it's yes. almost like before we even start talking about the person living with dementia, we almost need to talk about the caregiver first to sort of set that stage because you're right. I mean, it's only in my experience ways down the road then that we start focusing on the caregiver, right? I mean, it's only when we start to see the burnout. It's only when the person starts to throw their hands up to say, I can't do this anymore. Well, of course they can't because they were, it was never focused on how do you care for yourself to begin with, right? And we do have, I think, Part of it is human nature. I think part of it is societal too, that we don't put ourselves first. Yes. Yeah. And And I think especially I'll say, you know, as women as well, there's all, you know, I think that stereotypically there's that tendency and we know that most care providers are female. And so I think that there are so many things that play into this. And so you know, what I'm, what I'm hearing from our conversation, families need guidance. How do you guide them on these issues then? Yeah, how you guide them on the issues, right? Which is everything from basic education of how to understand the stages of dementia, provide supportive care, you know, do the day-to-day practical stuff. Um, and they also want to know my risk for getting dementia myself. That often comes up. So we have to kind of talk them through what are the risk factors in our control and what aren't, right? So we know age is the number one risk factor. That risk factor is not in our control and it's shared by all of us. 
Um, but what is in our control is healthy living, you know, so making some good choices there can help decrease risk. But back to the point you're making there is that we can help give them education and guidance on that and even direct them to other resources like in-home care services or technology. But where we fail is to recognize the journey of this lived experience that they are going through every day. So I remember being at a party, and I'm sure this happens to you a lot as well, Penny, but I remember being at a neighborhood party, all women, and somebody said, what do you do for a living? And I told them, and this woman pulled me aside and she said, my husband has dementia, nobody here at the party knows it, he was recently diagnosed, and he doesn't want to go anywhere anymore. So this is the first time I've been out of the house and he's at home alone. I feel guilty. I am i don't know if I should even be here, but he can't go out anymore. How do I tell anybody? Should I tell anybody? And these are the common things everybody's dealing with. She's losing her husband to this disease. What does that mean? Well, she's losing her partner to go to a party with. She's losing the breadwinner in the family. She's losing her decision maker. She's losing the dreams she had for their upcoming retirement. She's dealing with so many losses that create so much stress and then grief. Why aren't we talking about that enough? Why does it have to come up secretly in the corner at a party? It can't be that way anymore because you know what's happening. He's not just ill from this disease. She is becoming ill from this disease as she tries to go it alone in secret without any support, without any friends. And that's why, Penny, I am so thrilled with the Dementia Friendly America movement. It's kind of putting a spotlight on this. We can't let families isolate at home. We have to encourage them to get out and use our parks and, and go to the movies and go to the grocery store and have that empathetic, supportive community who knows if someone with dementia is engaging in the community, they might look a little different. That might take them a little longer to order off the menu. How can I help? that's going to be another way we can help families. That's a great point. I mean, it's really breaking down those stereotypes too. And, you know, I always think we are, we are such an ageist society to begin with, and we're an ableist society too. You know, we value we value doing, what can a person do? And I too think it's so important, not only for that family education, but the societal education that you're talking about. And I feel like we're slowly moving forward, obviously, in that we're taking steps forward. And that is wonderful to see. But what are some of those resources out there that can really help to educate and support families? Because we know, as you said, it's not just about the education, it's about that support as well. Yeah, so 
just in terms of the education or training, I want to make sure everybody knows there is a lot available out there and some of it has really come a long way. So it's if you know what diagnosis your loved one has, whether it's Alzheimer's or Lewy body or frontotemporal dementia, all of those websites have a lots of information that's very consumable and easy to understand to give the information about the diagnosis and day-to-day -day care. Um, in, in addition to uh, the NIH, um, but also I think driving them to support groups, which they can find through the local area on aging in, or the local Alzheimer's Association. That's a great way to get knowledge, but also to get other people who have a similar shared lived experience. Families can learn from each other. How did you handle this certain situation? Or what doctor or physician or specialized occupational therapist have you tapped into in the area? So I think that that's great. But there's other ways that we can help them to just make life easier. So I mentioned a minute ago, technology. You know, it's a lot, you, we can use smart home uh, technology. We can use technology for medication reminders. There's camera systems. So in those earlier stages of the disease, those kinds of um, supports can be helpful. Also, we know this is not typically just um, one family member who's who's involved as the caregiver. This is a family. And families are usually at different points in the um, process of, let's say, dementia grief. So if we think about the stages of grief, you know, we want everybody to, once the diagnosis has been made and we know someone has dementia, we want everybody to be at that acceptance phase, but we know that that takes a while and some family members get stuck in denial because denial is a great coping mechanism. We're not going to blame anybody here. But um, so we have to say to families, well, how can we help you, even though we know each of you as sisters and brothers or children may be at different points. So there are uh, communication applications out there, like Care Village is a really good one that helps families stay connected and informed about what's going on with mom or dad, like doctor appointments or day-to-day -day things. But it allows families to kind of be at the place they're at. You know, so those family members who are more able to get involved, they take the lead. Those who are maybe still struggling to get to acceptance can still communicate, but more from a distance. So I think those kinds of apps are great. And then also, I think being able to tap into resources like in-home care services is, is great. You know, the companion care, adult day services, because getting back to the family, they need time for themselves, Penny. They can't do it all 24-7. And you mentioned women, right? We're at the core of it. Usually women in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And this could even be a sandwich generation situation. So they need time away. So how does their loved one with dementia, if they're not yet living in a senior living community, how do they get the help and oversight at home they need Part of it can come from adult day or from these companion care agencies we hire. Part of it is just creating that care system. What friends or family can step in and help um, doing the things they feel comfortable with. But I, I'm gonna keep harking back on this. 
we've got to let families know it's okay to ask for help. I see you're shaking your head. They have to be able to know, I don't have to be superwoman. I don't have to do it all myself. I can and I should be bringing in all the help I can get. So I get time for me because if I'm not healthy, my loved one with dementia can't be healthy. Well, it's so true. And I think I was shaking my head because as you were talking about all of that, I was thinking to myself, we need to give permission. We need to give permission. And that's the thing that I don't think that we we're really always good at. We're not good. I think at accepting help sometimes when we're the caregiver, because we think that we should be doing it alone. And I don't think that we have this attitude in the professional healthcare system where we always say to people, okay, first and foremost, you can't do this alone. You're going to need help. And I think that the other thing that people don't think enough about is what you brought up, Kim, about the informal support system. You know, there are formal pieces out there, adult day and personal care services at home and respite and other options. And sometimes that's difficult for people to access for various reasons, because of financial payment, because of where they live, things like that. We have a workforce crisis right now that's impacting it. But I think that there are a lot of informal support systems that people don't even think of. And I'll give you an example. I had a, a close colleague of mine who had a friend who was diagnosed with early onset dementia, he was in his mid to late forties when he was diagnosed and he was an avid runner. And my colleague was an avid runner as well. And one of the things that he still wanted to do was to go out for a run. Well, as his dementia progressed, that wasn't the safest thing, quote unquote, for him to do on his own. So that's what she was able to do. She went out three times a week and she was able to run with him. And so think about that. It was so great for him to be doing that. It wasn't his normal run, but that didn't matter. It was so great for his wife and his children to be able to have that time when he went out for a run with somebody. I mean, and it's creative, but I think we need to give that permission for people to be creative. I I love that story. And it brings me back to the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about collaboration. So it's really not, you know, how do we just collaborate with families, but how do friends and family collaborate with one another? And I think, like you said, that can and should be happening all the time, but let's kind of get you know, the elephant out of the room, if you want to say, which is that sometimes people have a hard time just having a discussion about it. So I've heard friends of the family of someone with dementia say, well, we don't want to bring it up. We're waiting for them to bring it up. We noticed some so-and-so was different at the holiday party, but gosh, this is a difficult conversation. So we have to encourage the conversation to happen. And that can be part of our role as care providers is helping them to know how to have that conversation and then encouraging them to ask for that help from friends and loved ones, because often they want to help. They just have to get that permission to step in. And then I love what you said too, because it's about matching, right? So once you get people say, yeah, how can I help? How can you match what the person with dementia and you as the caregiver needs 
to the person who's willing to step in and help, whether that's matching schedules, matching interests, and you just, you know, keep talking about it. I think that's a key piece, open, honest communication. And I think that sometimes is what we're hardest at. And so (laughs) it's probably one of the reasons why this is so hard too. But I think you're right. I think that if we can just create that awareness that it's okay to talk about this, Mm -hmm. that that is a huge first step in the idea of collaboration. Uh, Yes, yes. Yeah, and it goes back a little to the, you know, you talked about ageism. Um, I think there's certainly a lot of beliefs that are held around dementia that are holding this back, right? So when somebody has dementia, sometimes it's just an automatic response. Well, they're just going to suffer from the disease. There's nothing anybody can do to help. Um, It's sometimes still looked at as a mental illness with sort of this negativity associated with that label. You know, so I think um, we can start dispelling myths, encouraging communication and guiding people. I think that that's the thing. How do you have, there's nothing wrong with creating a short educational session on how do you have the conversation with a friend? How do you bring it up? And everybody needs to be good listeners and, you know, empathy, you know, understanding the, the shoes that somebody is walking in is a key part of this journey. What is that loved one going through each and every day? And how can I help and not judge? How can I step in and help? I think that that piece is so important. Kim, if you were to really think about the most important thing to share about collaborating with and supporting families, what would it be? What would be that most important thing? I think as a health professional, I can't assume that one family situation is the same as someone else's. You know, I think I need to compassionately listen and learn about what the loved one is going through, what the person with dementia is going through and who they are. So as a professional, it's treat each situation very individually so that we can collaborate and get the best shared goal and outcome. And I think for families, my most important message is please don't go it alone. Please, please don't go it alone. Seek that support from friends, uh, hired professionals, have the conversation with your doctor um, and take care of yourself guilt-free because you, you deserve it. You matter as a family member. I think that is a great piece of advice. You matter and don't go it alone. If we could just have family members hear those two things, I think that that would be huge. I love talking with you, Kim. I I just, I'm so glad that you're here again with us today. And if all of you didn't catch the first conversation with Kim, please go to our website at pioneernetwork.net. If you click on the events tab, you'll see all, you'll see the listen, learn, explore graphic. And Kim's first discussion with us was episode 15. Um, And like I said, I think that this is standalone, but I really think Kim, the people would benefit from hearing our conversation about distress behaviors 
that we did last month as well. So I appreciate you being here. And I really think that we might have to think about having this continue as a series about dementia care and support. So we may need to talk about that if you're interested. Absolutely. And, you know, we've been doing training for professionals for gosh, 30 years now. And um, being able to provide dementia-capable care at home for families, that education and support has been something I've been wanting to do for forever. So I'm so happy to finally be getting that out there. And I appreciate your interest in this topic more than I can ever say, Penny. Um, This partnership with the Pioneer Network has been wonderful. And I do hope we can continue these discussions. I think they're valuable for everybody. I think so too. And all the information, Kim, is on your website, Dementia Care Specialist, that we'll include in the episode notes so that people can access the resources that you're talking about and the education that you're talking about as well. And for those of you who may have heard the dog barking and the doorbell, sorry for that. That may... (laughs) This is one of those things that happen when one record <laughs> these things at home. So apologies about that. But I want to thank you all for listening in today. You can check out all of our podcasts on the Pioneer Network website or whatever platform you listen on. And I know Depen- dementia care specialists will be using this information as well. So thank you all for listening today and have a great day. <laughs>